talk for a few minutes about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to talk about if it really happened. Because if it really happened, and it's not just some religious belief, then it should change everything. And when we talk about the resurrection, uh, we're not talking about where somebody after Jesus died had a vision of Jesus or had a dream about Jesus or he was like some ghost or some apparition. Almost in every religion, the religious leader always appears to people in visions or in dreams or like in apparitions, but that's all mental, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where he came back physically after he died. He came back bodily. He walked with people, talked with people, ate with people, interacted with people. But how do we know that that really happened? And if it really happened, what does it mean for us? What we're going to do in the Bible, you understand when we read the Bible, we're reading history books. We're reading eyewitness reports. We're reading about events that happened. And there, you guys have heard of the Apostle Paul. He wrote a bunch of the books in the Bible. And he wrote a letter to a church that was in the city of Rome. And this church in Rome in the first century this church wasn't started by Paul. It wasn't started by Peter or any of the other apostles. It was most likely started by Christians. There was this feast of Pentecost at the book of Acts at the beginning of the church. And it said that there were thousands of people there that encountered Jesus, that gave their lives to Jesus. And it said that there were visitors from Rome that were part of that group. In Acts chapter 2, verse 10, they were the ones that probably went back and started the church. Now, when Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, he hadn't visited the city yet. He hadn't been there. He was planning on coming. The letter was going before him. And he even said in, in Romans chapter 15, verse 23, 24, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now, why, why does this matter? Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome when he was in a city called Corinth, which is in Greece. Has anyone ever been to Greece? My wife and I hopefully are going to Greece in September. We are, she said, for sure. It's a city in Greece, and that's where Paul wrote this letter from during what was called his third missionary journey. He had three journeys that he took through that region. And how do we know that he wrote this letter from Corinth? How do we know that he wrote it at this time? There's a lot of little hints in the letter to the Romans. One example, at the end of the letter, Paul says, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cartus greets you. And then in another letter that Paul wrote to a man named Timothy, he said in 2 Timothy 4.20, Erastus remained at Corinth. 
Now, here's what's interesting about this. In 1929, there was an archaeological excavation in Corinth. And in the excavation, they found these rectangular pavement stones as part of one of the streets. And on and, and this one pavement stone that was near the theater in Corinth, there was a Latin inscription, and the Latin inscription mentions this same person, Erastus, the city treasurer. And the Latin inscription says, Erastus, in return for his idolship, paved it at his own expense. Now, Erastus, it said, what is idolship? It's a Latin word. And this Latin word was used for a city official. They get, they, it would, and they would change every year. Somebody else would take the position. And that city official was responsible for managing the public works and for managing uh, a bunch of the commercial, the commerce the commercial affairs of the city. And what's interesting, when Paul call, uses the Greek term, the city treasure, that's the identical term that corresponds to this Latin term, idolship. Now, this pavement stone is not from the Bible. This is from archaeology. And this tells us, and they know, the archaeologists have said, this was inscribed in the 50s A.D. And what's interesting, there is not a single reference in the Bible, right? A single reference anywhere in the Bible that has been contradicted by archaeology. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them. Every time the Bible has a person, a place, or an event, that it corresponds to an excavation of find archaeologically, it confirms what the Bible says. And sometimes they thought that there were things that were wrong in Scripture, and later archaeological finds... Confirmed it. It's accurate history. So the letter to the Romans was written from Corinth in about 56 to 57 AD in the first century. Ten years later, Paul, who wrote that letter, was beheaded. He was in Rome and they chopped his head off. And that happened sometime between around 64 and 67 AD. It was under a Roman emperor named Nero. Maybe some of you have heard the name before. Nero ruled in Rome from about 54 to 68 AD. And there's a lot of confirmation historically about Paul's beheading. One writer, Tertullian, a church historian, lived in the second century. And he wrote in, in one of his writings, 
called Scorpius, that Peter is struck, that Stephen is overwhelmed by stones, that James is slain as is a victim at the altar, that Paul is beheaded, has been written in their own blood. And if a heretic wishes his confidence to rest upon a public record, the archives of the empire will speak as would the stones of Jerusalem. We read the lives of the Caesars. At Rome, Nero was the first who stained with blood the rising faith. Then does Paul obtain a birth suited to Roman citizenship when in Rome he springs to life again, ennobled by martyrdom. So we have this ancient historian confirming Paul's beheading in Rome. Another historian, Eusebius, who lived in the 3rd century, in his books called Ecclesiastical History, said it is recorded that Paul was beheaded in Rome itself and that Peter was also crucified in Nero's time. And the title of Peter and Paul over the cemeteries there which has prevailed to this present day. So two centuries later, they, already, they still saw the markings of their cemeteries where they were buried. Now you might say, well, Sam, why are you talking about Paul and his head being chopped off? Why did Paul die? Paul didn't die because he had cancer, or he didn't die because of old age, he didn't die because he was in a chariot accident on a Roman road. He died because he was martyred. He was killed for a reason. And what was that reason? Because he refused to deny the claims of his faith that the Roman government was trying to snuff out. Paul died because he refused to deny the claims of what we call the gospel. The gospel means the good news. And the letter to the Romans that Paul was writing from the city of Corinth, that letter gives a detailed explanation of what we call the gospel, the good news. And in that detail, that is the, what Paul was willing to die for. The, Paul's companions were willing to die for that good news. The early Christians were willing to die for it. And what is at the center of that good news? Somebody tell me. What is it? The resurrection. The resurrection. Look at what, how Paul starts his letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So verse 1 mentions the word gospel. That's the theme of this letter that he wrote to the Roman church. 
And the gospel, what is it? It's the message of who Christ is, what Jesus has done, and how we receive it. Verse 3 says that Jesus was fully human. He was a man in every way, shape, and form. Verse 4 says that he is fully God. Fully God. Now the question is, how do we know that Jesus wasn't just a teacher or a prophet or a religious fanatic? How do we know that he was God in the flesh? How? A lot of religious leaders claimed to be God. To this day, I could take you to India, take you to an ashram, and, and, and introduce you to a man who claims to be God. I could take you to Tibet, into a Buddhist monastery, to somebody that claims to be God. We could... You know, there are little cults and there are little religions where people are always claiming to be God. And some of them really do miracles. They have some kind of spiritual power. And some of them do teach with great wisdom. Right? And some of them make a lot of disciples. And so a lot of people say, well, Jesus wasn't any different than all them. So how do we know that Jesus was different? How do we know that the claims that Jesus made about himself were true and that he wasn't just delusional? Paul tells us. He says, and he was declared to be the Son of God, here it is, by his resurrection from the dead. Do you guys see that? Do you understand, no other religious leader has ever come out of a grave after being dead for three days, rose bodily, rose physically, and ate food with his disciples and had conversations with them after rising from the dead. Nobody has ever done that before. In fact, Jesus himself said, my resurrection is going to be the main thing confirming that everything I said about myself is true. This is what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 12, 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They said, we want to see some kind of a cosmic sign in the heavens, something that really proves that you are who you say you are. Then he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, buried in a tomb. What is he saying? The resurrection is the sign. But in Paul's letter to the Romans, he doesn't just say that the resurrection confirmed everything Jesus claimed. He also says the resurrection was a consequence of what Jesus did on the cross. 
Let's look at it in Romans chapter 4, verse 24, 25. It, which is righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You might say, Sam, what is that verse talking about? Jesus' death on the cross was not just a martyr's death. Oh, that guy died for a good cause. Look how zealous he is. It was what we call an atoning death. Have you guys ever heard the word atonement? Well, some of you have. What does the word mean? Atonement's a fancy word that means this. To satisfy judgment. To turn away wrath. Every sin that a human being commits, do you want, listen to me carefully, it is not just against other people. It is against God. What is sin? Sin is everything that God's character is not. God is truth. Lying is a sin. God is love. Lust is a sin. God is life. Murder is a sin. God is kind. Raging at somebody out of anger is a sin. It is everything God's character is not. But what does that mean? Sin is a defiance of who God is. What does that mean? It means that the punishment for sin is a separation from God, and it's what we call death, eternal death. In, in that sense, from an eternal viewpoint, every sin deserves a, is a capital punishment. And the Bible says this over and over and over. In Romans chapter 1, Paul lists all of the sins human beings commit. And you and I have committed them. If you think you're perfect, just ask your girlfriend or your wife. She'll let you know that you're not. Romans 1.32 Though they know God's just decree that those who practice such things, these sins, deserve to die. To be separated from God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, separation from God forever. Nobody ever talks about hell anymore, but just because people don't talk about it doesn't mean it's not real. But God does not just have the attribute of justice. God also has the attribute of mercy. Everybody say mercy. You want mercy, right? So God is going to satisfy his justice. God is going to punish sin. Sinners and sin is going to be separated from him. But how God punishes sin is his prerogative. God could punish the sinner, now listen to me, or 
God can punish a substitute in the sinner's place. And you know what God has chosen to do? God has chosen to permit substitution. This is what Jesus did on the cross when he died. God said, I'm going to permit substitution. I'm going to provide a substitute. And I'm going to become the substitute. I'm going to become a man and die in your place. Take the punishment you deserve on the cross. When you look at this verse, who was delivered up for our trespasses, he, Jesus didn't die for his own trespasses and sins. He died for whose? Ours. Ours. But what is the proof that Jesus' de death wasn't just a martyr's death? What is the proof that what he accomplished on the cross was what's called atonement, right? As a substitute, bearing the punishment of death you deserve as a substitute in your place. How do we know that actually happened? What's the proof? Paul tells us. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What's the proof that he paid the penalty of our place? What is the proof? Everybody say it. Resurrection. The resurrection. You might say, well, Sam, how is that the proof? Listen to me carefully. If Jesus' death on the cross, if he died as a substitute in your place, if it was atonement, not just a martyr's death, then the resurrection was a necessary consequence of that atonement. You might say, well, Sam, what do you mean? The resurrection is the proof that the atonement, that the forgiveness offered on the cross was effective. You might say, well, how? Think about it like this. Jesus could no more remain dead than a criminal who is given a prison sentence. Let's say he's given a prison sentence for 10 years. What happens when the 10 years are up? Why is he released? He paid it in full. Well, if Jesus paid it in full... He could no more remain dead than a prisoner could remain in prison after he paid his sentence in full. So what's the resurrection proof of? The penalty's been paid in full. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if you receive what he has done for you, you can look at the resurrection and know for certain that you are, everybody say justified. What is justification? Paul says in raised for our, just, what is justification? It means to be declared innocent. It means to be declared 
righteous. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done for you. But not only did Paul say that the resurrection is a confirmation of Jesus' claims, and not only did Paul say that the resurrection is a consequence of his atonement, his death on the cross, Paul also said that the resurrection is our conviction. What does that mean? Romans 8, 34, 36. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What does interceding mean? He ha- he, he's for you, not against you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, Paul... And his companions, the apostles, and the early Christians, they claimed what? Did they claim that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Here's the question. Did they really believe it? Did they really, really believe it? What did Paul and the early Christians face? Paul tells us, he gives you a glimpse. What did they face? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. They were hunted down by the Roman government. They were hunted down by, even within Israel, those that were against them. They were hunted down. They were persecuted. Why were they persecuted? Do you understand? They were not allowed to participate in the marketplace. Do you understand that many times when you read about the early Christians, they were mocked and ridiculed. They were arrested and imprisoned. And ultimately they were killed. Do you understand? Now listen to me. In verse 35, the persecution of verse 35 is because of what they believed and proclaimed in verse 34. Do you understand that? And what was it? Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised, who was at the right hand of God. Do you understand something? The overwhelming evidence of Scripture... The overwhelming evidence of church historical documents, and listen to me, of secular, non-church historical documents, is that the early Christians died because they refused to deny their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. That claim was a threat, it threatened Caesar, 
It threatened Roman governors. It threatened other religious leaders. And they refused to deny that claim. Here's an example from Scripture. Acts 4, verse 1 to 3. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the Sadducees, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and what? Proclaiming in Jesus what? The resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Why were they arrested? Because they proclaimed the resurrection and refused to deny it. An example from early church writings, a man named Ignatius, he lived in the first century. And he wrote this in a letter to a, a, a group of Christians in a city called Smyrna in Turkey. For I know and believe that he was in the flesh even after the resurrection. And when he came to those with Peter, he said to them, Take, handle me, and see that I am not a phantom without a body. And they immediately touched him and believed, being mingled both with his flesh and spirit. Therefore, they despised even death and were proved to be above death. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that Peter and the others, because of their belief in the resurrection, were willing to die for that belief. And then we have secular Roman writings. These are not Christians. Pliny the Younger, he lived in the first century. Pliny the Younger was a Roman senator that wrote a lot of letters. And in about 111 AD, he wrote a letter to an emperor, Roman emperor Trajan, and he was describing his experience with early Christians whom he didn't like. And in describing, he would describe how he would interrogate them, how he would persecute them, and he would say he mentions Christ's name in his letters. And he mentions that Christ's followers would sing to Christ and worship him as a god. And in his letters, he would mention that on a fixed day before dawn, they would gather, which almost without a doubt was Sunday mornings. Here's what he wrote. I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christus, which is a way he's referring to Christ, as a God. 
Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. Why meet on Sunday morning? What morning is it right now? There's no tradition of Sunday morning worship each week in Judaism. Their Sabbath is, starts Friday evening, right? Through Saturday. There's no tradition of early Sunday morning worship in Roman paganism. So how did it even start that all of these Jews and Rome and Greeks, why did they switch their worship to Sunday morning? And secondly, why worship Jesus as God? Jesus rose on Sunday morning. His resurrection showed that he was not just another Jewish teacher, but that he was God. Where? If there was no resurrection, where did these traditions come from? Think about it. When you look at the persecution and you look at the martyrdom of the early Christians, people might argue this. They might argue, well, just because you die for your belief doesn't mean your belief is true. Right? I mean, Tibetan Buddhist monks in Tibet, they light themselves on fire when they protest. Self-immolation. They do that. Sometimes uh, Muslims, radical Muslims, will blow themselves up in a market square as part of jihad, holy war. And so people will say, well, what's the big deal about the early Christians being martyrs? It, it happens everywhere. They're just all religious fanatics. But they're missing the point. That argument is missing the point. And the point is this. The apostles and the early Christians, their willingness to suffer and die for their beliefs, it tells us something. It tells us that they certainly believed that what they believed was true. Did you hear what I just said? It tells us certainly that what they believed, they believed was true. Now think about this for a moment. If the apostles made up the story of the resurrection, do you know how early the literature we have is? This was written within the lifetime of the people that said they saw it. And within the lifetime of the people that knew the people that said they saw it. This isn't hundreds and hundreds of years later. Ignatius, Pliny the Younger, Luke who wrote the book of Acts, Paul who wrote the letter to the Romans. If the apostles made up the story of the resurrection if they fabricated it, if they knew, would they have 
if they knew that the story was a lie. Sometimes people will die for something that they believe is true, but it turns out later that they were wrong, right? But who dies for what they know is a lie? Listen to me. Who dies for what they know wasn't true? Here's the last, here's in the book of Romans, and we'll finish with this. Here's what Paul says about the resurrection. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? Not because you want it to be true. You, when Paul, Paul says believe it because it is true. You will be what? Saved. We've been looking at the book of Romans. It explains this good news, the gospel. The center of it is the resurrection. But what is Paul saying in this verse? Everyone, say it again, you will be saved. Every person needs to be saved. You, in our Sin, right, in our fallenness, in our lostness spiritually, we're drowning. You need a lifeboat. You need to be saved. Salvation from what? Death. From separation from God forever. It means eternal life instead of eternal separation from God. It means, that, what does it mean to be saved? That you're going to be resurrected? Jesus was just the first of many. They call it the first fruits. When you go out and, you know, the, or the first piece of fruit that's ripe, then you know there's more fruit later. It means to be resurrected like he was. But what else does this say in Romans 10, 9? Paul says to be saved, listen to me, it is not enough to hear it. It is not enough just to hear it. You have to believe it. And belief, what is belief? It involves, everybody say faith and trust. If I believed that this chair can hold me up, I can just, I can argue with you all day long. I know that chair is going to hold me up. I believe that chair is going to hold me up. How do you know if I believe it? If I sit in it, right? Guess, listen to me carefully. It's the exact same way with you and Jesus. It's the exact same way. And lastly, it's not enough just to believe, because a lot of you are like, I do believe. Paul says here, we have to share it with others as well. How then, Romans 10, 14, will they call on him 
in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? If Jesus really rose from the dead, then that is not news that you keep to yourself. Right? Everybody say right. It's not. It's like having a vaccine that actually works and hiding it and not sharing it with anybody. Roger, you want to come on up? We're going to have just finished this morning. We're going to pray for a moment. Some of you, as I was speaking, um, you can feel that God is calling you. God's saying, okay, you know, you've lived life without me. How well has that been going? I died on the cross for you to take away all your sin, to, to forgive you, to make you pure and holy and righteous. And then I rose from the dead. It's all true. It's all, and, I had, and I made sure there were lots of eyewitnesses. And they wrote it all down, what they saw. I was in Morocco. You guys know Morocco, North Africa? Um, I was in Morocco a couple of years ago with a team and I was in a taxi and he was a Muslim taxi driver and I asked him I said what do you think about Jesus Isa you know they call him and he said oh Jesus he's just a great prophet Muhammad's a great prophet Abraham was a great prophet lots of great prophets and I said that's all Jesus was just a guy with good messages Yes, yes, Jesus was, and he just repeated the same line to me. And I said, but there's a really big difference. And, he, and he's driving, turning around and looking at me while he's driving. I'm like, look ahead. I said, Muhammad never rose from the dead. Abraham didn't rise from the dead. No other prophet has risen from the dead physically and bodily, but Jesus did. And the taxi driver then, I can literally see his eyes through the window looking back at me. And he was quiet. <laughs> Do you understand? Some of us are like that taxi driver. And you understand what God is asking of you. God is asking you just to believe what's true. That's it. So let's pray for a moment. God, I ask this morning there are some of us, Lord, that we have no, we had a relationship with you in the past, but we've wandered away from you. And this morning, you want us to come back. You don't want us to run away from you. You want us to to run to you. And some of us, Lord, have never had a relationship with you. We've never believed. We've never put our trust in you. But this morning, God, I know 
that you're calling us to put our trust in you. Some of you, your whole life, you've wanted to be forgiven and saved. You've just never made that step. But this is the most perfect moment. Plus, you don't have, you don't know if you'll, how do you know that you're not going to die tomorrow? How do you know that you will not die tomorrow?